from VOA Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. Joining me on the program is assistant producer with the current affairs desk, Sydney Sherry. Our topic on this edition of the program, a deep dive into the situation in Haiti in the aftermath of the assassination of its president, our guest, George Fauriol. He's a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a fellow with the Caribbean Policy Consortium, and a member of the Think Tank Haiti Steering Group, which is a partnership between the Université Kiskeya in Haiti and the Inter-American Dialogue. George is an expert on Haiti and the Americas and has had multiple appearances before U.S. congressional committees. The sudden assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise on July 7 left a power vacuum with no sitting parliament. Former President Moise had been ruling by decree from January 2020 until his untimely death at the hands of more than two dozen Colombian mercenaries and two Haitian Americans. The investigation into the motives behind the brazen attack is ongoing with the help of several law enforcement agencies, including the U.S. FBI. Danica Cotto of the Associated Press writes that on Tuesday, July 20, Haiti's government installed a new prime minister, even as officials mourned the passing of President Jovenel Moise and arrested at least three police officers implicated in his killing. She reports that designated Prime Minister Ariel Henry was sworn in to replace interim Prime Minister Claude Joseph, who assumed leadership of Haiti with the backing of police and the military shortly after the July 7 attack. Given questions swirling over who was in charge in the aftermath of the assassination, Joseph Henry or the president of the Senate, the question of who leads Haiti has at least been temporarily settled. The Associated Press reports, quote, the change in leadership comes after a group of key international diplomats called on Henri to create a consensual and inclusive government. The so-called core group is composed of ambassadors from Germany, Brazil, Canada, Spain, the United States, France, and the European Union, as well as representatives from the United Nations and the Organization of American states, unquote. Most regional observers say that very little occurs in Haiti without a powerful foreign component. As The Economist magazine reminds, quote, the last time a president was murdered in Haiti in 1915, troops from the United States occupied the Caribbean country for 19 years, unquote. Subsequently, the United States has intervened on several occasions during moments of crisis, such as in 1994, to reinstate Jean-Bertrand Aristide, Haiti's first democratically elected leader, who was ousted in a coup in 1991. Haiti has been beset by natural and man-made disasters since it won its independence from France through a slave rebellion in 1803. The revolt was, and still is, an inspiration to enslaved and colonized people everywhere. Unfortunately, the country has continued to suffer from dictatorships and coups, in 2010, a large earthquake devastated Haiti, leaving over 100,000 people dead. Moise came to power in 2017 amid allegations of corruption and fraud. Some critics say he dismantled much of the nation's democratic institutions. The lack of strong government structures has allowed gang violence to increase, including lootings and kidnappings. Some sections of Haiti lie completely within gang control. On this edition of the program, we will talk with George Fauriol about what role the United States and other regional organizations can play in helping to restore justice 
and rebuild Haiti's economy and its moribund democratic and social institutions. And George Fauriol joins us via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Happy to be here. George Fauriol, let's talk quickly about the state of play after the swearing in of the new prime minister. Is Haiti, do you think, on the right track, given what appears to be more unity? Describe the current power struggle underneath all of this, the factions in the country vying for power. Well, what is comforting is that there is at least in the short run, if not a consensus, but at least a recognizable governing structure with a leader, Ariel Henry, as prime minister, that at least has some credibility and connection to not only the previous administration of President Moïse, but also some sense and capability of moving forward. But it remains an extraordinarily fragile environment, in part because many of the political issues that had, in many ways, undermined Moise's presidency remain in place and still need to be dealt with, and also implies, in effect, dealing with a whole series of social and economic development questions that ultimately come to the surface in this moment of tragedy. I'll say, however, that it also provides an opportunity for a significant reset, potentially, of Haitian politics, maybe a path towards some level of consensus among Haitian political actors, and to some degree, potentially also a reset of how the international community responds to the needs of Haiti. George, let's jump to the role of the core group. And I want to do that because some Haitian critics are saying this core group, this group of Western countries, including the United States and the Organization of American States, is interfering too much, that they should be consulting more with civil society groups and other political factions about this transitional government. What is your take on that? There is some degree of logic to the sort of average Haitian criticism that the international community tends to tip the balance in critical moments that when Haiti faces a crisis. It's happened before, particularly in outcomes of elections in 2011, and again in 2015 and 2016 to some degree. There's a certain weight, if you will, that the international community, through financial presence as well as sometimes security, peacekeeping presence that ultimately shapes the political dynamic and dialogue in Haiti. And I think, therefore, it's useful to remind international actors that as they proceed in terms of potential assistance to Haiti, it is probably useful to ensure that those actions are anchored in reality, in a political reality, in a dialogue among Haitians. Because as a practical matter, without a dialogue, without some level of consensus among key actors in Haiti, What the international community does ultimately does not really develop any deep roots, and therefore it has to be started and restarted over and over again and repeated over time. I think in the present context, the issue is particularly relevant in some ways because the assassination of President Moise leaves in limbo a constitutional reform calendar as well as a set of elections which have been delayed twice also to deal with, in some ways, the absence of a parliamentary regime in in Haiti. Yet, at the same time, this sort of interim period cannot last for months and years. So the international community, in some ways, is in a delicate position of both trying to urge key actors in Haiti to come together, to in fact use this tragedy 
as a moment to at least identify a path forward. It doesn't mean everyone has to agree with everything, but at least there's a, a national consensus of how to move forward. And the international community has to be there, not so much to tip the balance, but in some ways to encourage that dialogue and to provide the support that is needed to ultimately ensure that there are actually actual results on the ground. It's not an easy task. And as your question implies, the track record of the international community in Haiti, in the minds of many Haitians, is less than perfect. There are some that will ultimately be resolved on their own, but there are other cases which sort of stick in the mind, I think, of average Haitians. This includes the peacekeeping presence of the last 10, 15 years, which brought with it the cholera epidemic. In other contexts, in the 1990s, international assistance, including from the United States, succeeded in essentially eliminating an entire industry, the rice production industry, which was relatively vibrant in Haiti. And Haiti now has to import its rice sort of major staple. So there are examples like that that remind many Haitians that while they appreciate the support, and in many cases, the presence of the international community really makes a difference, in some ways, there is a certain burden that comes along with that. And I think every time that there's an action from the United States or other key actors, while much appreciated, I think one needs to be careful as to how this is ultimately executed in an environment where the success rate has been quite poor, frankly. George, I want to go back to Moise for a moment. This horrible assassination is certainly devastating on a personal and, of course, institutional level and for the country. But his legacy, his contributions to the country are mixed, at least among many people. Some say he truly was trying to fight corruption. Others say he may have been part of it. How would you characterize Moise's time in office, his legacy? I think it's maybe a little premature to tell, but the overall outlines may be as follows, which is, it, to some degree, Moise provided, in fact, an opportunity for a presidency which was going to be led and shaped by someone who, is, in many ways, was not a politician. It has an appeal in Haiti, has an appeal in some ways in many countries around the world. That is, in an environment where the political class is often viewed as uh, self-centered, maybe corrupt, promising, and then not delivering. Here comes a relatively, from the outside, genteel individual who comes, in effect, not from the capital, from the northern part of the country, who has a background that is not political in nature. The practical flip side of that, however, is that it highlights the degree to which a country like Haiti also needs credible, effective, professional management of national policy issues. And in the context, therefore, of the presidency of Jovenel Moise, you end up with, in effect, a tension here. And I think that the biggest failings, if you will, of Moise may have been that in an environment we faced fairly quickly political issues and challenges, where we faced accusations of corruption, particularly connected to the Petro-Caribe issue, we faced a sequencing of political developments, the delayed legislative elections and so forth, and in some ways appeared to be overcome by all of these problems and lost control of the political scene. And I think some of that has to do with his level of inexperience as a political leader. So it's a difficult issue, and I think it may be a reminder as we look forward, hopefully, to a set of national elections in the near future, the degree to which it is important for national leaders to have, if you will, a biography that includes not only great ideas and appeal and an ability to talk to the average citizen of Haiti, 
but also to have an appreciation, having internalized a little bit how these things ultimately are achieved in the day-to-day world of managing political governmental activity. And I think Moise ultimately lost control of that. Secondly, he also, in a more practical sense, lost control of his own political machinery, including, to some degree, my hunch is Haitian National Police capability deteriorated under his tenure, lost control of the streets, both politically and in terms of security. So I think in some ways it ended in tragedy. I don't think anyone expected that outcome. But the signals were not particularly reassuring in the last maybe 18 months that this was a presidency that ultimately had control of the key agenda, that a country like Haiti really needs serious, professional, democratic governance. And ultimately, that is not what Moise was able to deliver. We'll have more about the question of democratic governance in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. We're talking about Haiti with expert George Fariol, who's a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a fellow with the Caribbean Policy Consortium. I'm Carol Castiel, and joining me on the program is assistant producer Sydney Sherry. This is a reminder that our Press Conference USA podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com slash PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Coyote Olabi from Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send us an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Now I'd like to turn to my colleague, Sydney Sherry. She probably wants to get into more of the roots of the crisis. Sydney, go right ahead. We hosted Professor Eduardo Gamara of Florida International University on our encounter show last week, and he had a very pessimistic view about Haiti's democratic institutions, arguing that, quote, you have to have a state to begin with to have a failed state. Do you view Haiti in a similar dire light? And if so, What are some actions that the international community and Haiti's own government can help to restore those democratic institutions and government? That's a very good question that a lot of people are actually asking themselves. I'm not quite sure that I differed that greatly from Professor Gomara's assessment in the sense that the core institutional capability of the Haitian government, I think in the minds of most Haitians, is either invisible or at times, in fact, counterproductive and negative in character. So there's really no clear instance where there is a clear delivery, if you will, of services in a broad sense by the Haitian state. And it's particularly true the moment that you leave the capital city or move out of some of the major centers of the country. Where I'm a little less pessimistic is in somehow assuming that if that's the case, then everything is either hopeless or somehow we need potentially other kinds of political solutions which may be less democratic than we would like to. I think instead I would say that the ability of the state to rebuild itself is partially not only in the hands of political leadership that actually is in government or in the legislature, but also in the hands of a fairly vibrant civil society that does exist in Haiti, and I think is stronger today than might have been 15 or 20 or 25 years ago. It is, however, rather diverse. I think it lacks a political consensus or sort of national compact of how to govern Haiti. And I think that would actually be a significant step forward in rebuilding, or at least in anchoring more firmly, the notion in in practical political terms as well as in the eyes of the average Haitian citizen. That will not be easy, but there's a role 
that the international community can play in this regard. And it's not only the role of governments, which may be a bit overbearing in an environment like this, but rather a number of more specialized non-governmental organizations. Some of those have a long history in Haiti, but I think there's a role there to encourage civil society and its various actors to not only address, if you will, some of the near-term political questions and reinforce the sense of consensus, but also have an ability to lay out the broad foundation of what will be required to deepen or anchor the notions of a modern Haitian state. To me, the ingredients exist and the human talent exists. It just needs to be put together, perhaps in a way that only encourage a productive outcome. To some degree, the extensive Haitian diaspora in the United States, in Canada and elsewhere has a role to play in the sense that it brings with it capabilities, experiences, levels of success, which can be perhaps translated, not imported, but translated into a Haitian context and a Haitian dialogue. So I'm a bit more optimistic, but I have to admit that at times it becomes challenging when you look at the sort of series and sequences over time of disappointments and the fact that it's true that today really the Haitian state as an entity is at minimum very weak and in most cases really almost invisible. So, George, in a recent article, you invoke the Caribbean community, CARICOM, of which Haiti is a member, as perhaps having a particular role, the OAS. How would you characterize a positive, constructive role for these organizations going forward as Haiti is trying to traverse this very delicate moment? It's an interesting question because, in a way, I think, particularly for the OAS, to some degree also the United Nations, have a checkered record to be candid in Haiti since the 1990s. It's not that they haven't been helpful is that a lot of the support has not really developed sustainable kinds of institutional development or practices, particularly in the area of, for example, for the OAS, in the area of electoral reform and sustainability and electoral machinery. In the case of the United Nations, maybe the follow-on, if you will, to peacekeeping being a better capability for law and order. I say that in a sense that one has to go with the other, an institutional development capability that actually actually functions properly and openly in a democratic society. But yet, at the same time, particularly the OAS, also has a capability, a series of institutional history that, particularly in the electoral arena, which I think can be deployed again in Haiti, except in this time, maybe with a sense that it's not just to deal with the upcoming election or some electoral change that occurs, but rather to help Haiti institutionalize its election machinery. This is part of it is a mechanical issue. The other one is a question of staffing. And the third one, in some ways, is a question of long-term financing to ultimately ensure that this is ultimately sustainable over a period of time. The CARICOM community, therefore, which Haiti is a member of the Caribbean community, provides a sort of an additional element to this. It's a challenge as much for Haiti, if you will, to find a place in the Caribbean. And as a member of CARICOM, it has really, over time, never fully taken advantage of what CARICOM ultimately provides. It is, in many ways, a community of countries that are governed by and sustained through traditions of democratic governance and the rule of law and an important role for legislature and the free press. It's not perfect, and CARICOM countries admit that themselves, but there's a mechanism within the Caribbean community, within CARICOM, that allows 
for crises to ultimately be dealt with, in the most recent case was Guyana's troubled elections last year, where CARICOM actually stepped in and played a positive role. Haiti has had this sort of tense relationship with CARICOM in the immediate context of the Moise presidency. In fact, CARICOM tried to provide some assistance, some support, some counsel, if you will, some solidarity in some ways, was in many ways rebuffed by the Moise government. I think now with the tragedy, we have an, another opportunity, particularly in two areas where CARICOM can play a role. One is, in fact, an encouraging civil society dialogue. This is really, in some ways, better done, not through formal institutional mechanisms, but rather through sort of private individual groups talking to their counterparts in Haiti and encouraging them to foster a national consensus. CARICOM also has a, a mechanism and machinery, if you will, that deals with issues having to do with rule of law, electoral politics and dynamics, and I think could play maybe a sort of user-friendly role of neighbors working with neighbors. But that's why I think Although it's not the obvious and only solution that CARICOM can also join up with the OAS and other actors in supporting particularly Haiti's search towards electoral reform and ultimately a set of credible elections to, in effect, answer and reply to the problem that Haiti faces now, which is it hasn't had parliamentary election since delayed in October of 2019. It also has this sort of additional burden that was put in motion by the Moise government of an effort towards a constitutional reform, a process which I think most observers would suggest that the 1987 constitution probably does need an update, but you need to do it in a credible fashion. And at least my opinion is that there were too many shortcuts that were taken in this process so far. So Organizations like the OAS, like CARICOM, play an important role in supporting Haiti's move towards credible elections and even constitutional reform. George, I know this is a big question and could take up a whole program, but I wonder if you could identify some of the factors that contribute to Haiti's difficulty in strengthening its institutions and the rule of law over the decades. We know about the natural disasters, and certainly foreign interventions have been very fraught as I said in the introduction, in 1915, the United States went in, but they introduced racial segregation laws. And then we talked about the UN blue helmets having gone in in the 1990s, and even between 2004 and 2017 to provide stability, but that their legacy was mixed with, as you mentioned, the cholera epidemic, and there was sexual assault and so forth. So all of that's well taken. But what other factors? Because as you said, the diaspora is so dynamic here in the United States, in Canada, it's an extraordinarily resilient people. When you think about, you know, how they overcame slavery and the rebellion, how is it that such an extraordinary place with extraordinary people has had such difficulty in reaching political and economic stability? That's the major question, and I'm not quite sure that I have the specific answer, but let me give you a few sort of explanations in my own mind. One of them is, maybe it sounds flippant, but it's that Haiti's leaders have really been rather terrible. What I mean by that is, in, in some ways, there has been a disconnect between the needs of the country and ultimately the people who lead the country. They're either incompetent or, in some ways, unable to manage difficult political situations beyond even their normal competencies. Also, in some ways, clearly are distracted, maybe under pressure from local actors, from international actors to do this or that. But in the end, you end up with essentially incoherent governance. That's one level. It's not really a particularly satisfactory reply. But if you look at the sort of sequencing of national leaders 
in Haiti, if only since the fall of the Duvalier dictatorships. There's really nothing that sort of shines, if you will, in terms of exemplary kind of governance that only is successful and sustainable. That sort of begs the question, why really is this so? I think in some cases, the inability of what I've described just a moment ago, of a sense of a national pact, of a national consensus among key actors in Haiti as to what the basic rules of the game ultimately are that anyone can agree on, which allow, in effect, political groups to push their own agenda, their own interests, yet not for the system to collapse over and over again. And I think it's the absence of that consensus of this sort of what I described, national compact, which has been at sort of at the bottom in some ways of the failings of Haitian governance, despite international assistance. The problem with international assistance is that it is international, it is assistance. But if it doesn't translate into a succession, if you will, of institutions that are actually managed by Haitians with sort of Haitian objectives and sort of a path forward that is entirely Haitian, that international assistance really ultimately does not really deliver what it needs to deliver. In a few specific arenas, there have been egregious examples where the lack of political consensus among key actors in Haiti and I would suggest a lack of attention and discipline on the part of international actors has led to sort of a case where that international assistance is wasted, goes nowhere, sort of disappears into thin air. A lot of the reconstruction aid, for example, after the 2010 earthquake, is hard to find in Haiti. It's somewhere else, but it's certainly not in Haiti. How these things can happen, I think, is a burden on the international community to, to do a better job of accounting for what ultimately it does and what ultimately it spends or commits to the development of Haiti. So there's this interaction, if you will, of actors who ultimately define key moments and ultimately do not deliver anything that's particularly welcoming and productive for the average Haitian. As a result, I think there is either that sort of cynical attitude that nothing works in Haiti and it's hopeless, or you have the alternative one, which is that Haiti therefore needs international assistance. That every time there's a crisis, you basically call up Washington and hopefully they will do something that will resolve the crisis. But I'm afraid I just repeat myself. I keep coming back that where the international community could play an important role is not so much in the volume of economic assistance as much as in the sustained dialogue that they'd encourage among Haitian actors to actually have a sort of long term vision how to do things better, not in anything dramatic, but at least in a way that is sustainable over time. And once that pathway is ultimately identified, then key international actors, particularly the United States, can play a supporting role, whether it's political, diplomatic, or financial, even to some degree in security terms. But absence of that national compact, I think you will end up with consistently disappointing outcomes and frustrations on the part of the United States and other actors. Just a few sort of rapid-fire questions before we close, George. Are you relatively optimistic that we're at a juncture where perhaps that type of dialogue can take place and the building of permanent institutions? Or do you see rumblings and disunity beneath what we just saw, this veneer of transition of power? I'm by nature um, sort of an optimist, so I am assuming that in the short run, the rumblings that I think do exist in the background uh, can be 
at minimum papered over so that the process moves forward. I am a little uncomfortable, however, in the sense that the Ariel Henry prime ministership in some ways is sort of a temporary stopgap solution, which only begs the question of how the new prime minister, his cabinet, and the political community out there are going to deal with what are two unresolved issues, which also affect how the international community deals with the Haitian environment. The two key issues that are in some ways unresolved is the forthcoming set of elections, which are now scheduled for September the 26th. I think it's highly unlikely these can take place then. And the constitutional referendum that was set in motion by Jovenel Moïse himself during his presidency. I think there are two issues here. One of them is whether those elections and the constitutional referendum can actually be held in a credible manner sometime in, hopefully, in this calendar year or at least in the near future. And I would add also a discussion among civil society actors as to the sequencing of those two events. There's been some back and forth. Belatedly, including the United States, in some ways pushed back Jovenel Moïse's idea of a constitutional referendum and instead focused much of the attention on having elections. I think in some ways the tragedy of the Moïse assassination provides a potentially slightly different sequencing, but it requires serious investment on the part of civil society and political actors in Haiti, which is to suggest that in effect, if those elections and a referendum in a practical sense could not be held on September the 26th, is this an opportunity to reset the constitutional reform process to make it actually much more credible, viable process, which until now, I would argue, has not been credible at all, and push that process forward as effectively as possible with the assumption, therefore, that the elections that would be held in follow-on step of a new constitution would then be much more credible. George Foriol is a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a fellow with the Caribbean Policy Consortium. George, thank you so much for enlightening us with your insights about the situation in Haiti. We greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. And joining me on the program was assistant producer Sidney Sherry. I'm Carol Castiel. Please join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.